It's Herb Alpern, the G1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Particularly, he analyzes the baseball considerations that consider Evan Magoria and the contract extension he just signed with the Tampa Bay Rays. It's the second very team-friendly contract that Longoria has signed with the Rays. And uh, I asked Cameron about it, about what it means you know, for Longoria, about why he would do such a thing, what sort of value Longoria himself would have to produce in order to be worth a contract. Hint, it's not a lot. And maybe uh, also a, a worst-case scenario uh, a type of situation concerning Longoria, the Rays, that contract, etc., because it's signed through 2023, which is decidedly the future. Also touched on in brief in what follows, uh, Hiroki Kuroda. He remains a Yankee uh, for not much more than he made last year and uh, not much more than the qualifying offer that was extended to him uh, a month or two ago. Also, uh, Michael Inoa, the uh, pitcher who has a 16-year-old, was given a 4.2 or $25 million bonus by the Oakland A's. Uh, he was just added to the 40-man roster for Oakland um, after only pitching, I think he's only pitched maybe... 40 or 50 innings total as a professional. Uh, we talk about him and to what degree he represents the risks of uh, signing young pitchers, uh, that sort of thing. There, there's, a, there's a bunch else in what follows. You know, you know who Dave Cameron is. Uh, he's going to answer all your questions. He's going to answer questions you didn't even know you had. Uh, that's what's to follow. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron analyzing all baseball, and it begins right now. Because it, when did it happen? Uh, I don't know, about nine thirty this morning. Okay, yeah. So I mean, just, they, you know, they said they've been negotiating this for months, but they announced it this morning. And did anyone know anything about this? No, the uh, Rays were pretty close to leak proof. They don't really talk to the media much. Uh, well, let's discuss Longoria in a second. I'm, I'm curious about that idea of, of leak proof, though, uh, because that, that obviously just suggests that some clubs are leaky. Is is this yeah. like is this a thing of I assume that clubs are aware of this phenomena? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the Yankees essentially ninety five percent of their moves we know before they happen because the the Yankee front office talks to their beat writers and gives them heads up on things and uh, you know there are other organizations that are you know they kind of telegraph their moves um, you know whether intentionally or not but you kind of know in advance. Hey, uh, you know, like, uh, a good example of the Royals uh, with Jeremy Guthrie signing Ken Rosenthal immediately after they traded Vermin Santana started talking about how because it was just a one-year deal, they could then re-sign Jeremy Guthrie to a backloaded three-year contract if they wanted to. And then two weeks later, they announced a backloaded three-year contract for Jeremy Guthrie. It was a move that Rosenthal clearly had some inside information on and, and kind of knew what was coming and moving the works. Um, that kind of thing you don't really get with Tampa that much. They just kind of uh, go about their business and then help things when they when they have that. I will say to a sane person, seeing a report that um, uh, Move X clears up space to sign Jeremy Guthrie, um, I mean, regard, regardless of the accuracy, it seems crazy. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, we, de- we could dedicate an entire podcast to the Royals and and their ways. Uh, you know, maybe if they end up trading Will Myers for a pitching prospect because they think they need pitching, we should do a whole podcast on the insanity of the Royals. But uh, I don't know that today is that day. No, no let's not do that. Uh, so Evan Longoria, who is famous 
uh, has been famous sort of for the last couple of years for having probably the most team-friendly contract uh, in all of baseball. And I believe – Also also being pretty good at baseball. Right, being very good, which is what makes his, uh, his contract so team-friendly. But I believe he's sat atop – uh, your trade value series now for what two, three, four, three years? Like uh, I think it was like three or four years. Uh, Mike Trout dethroned him this year, but uh, before that, yeah, I think he had a three or four year stretch of uh, pretty solid runs. Right, and certainly the only player because Trout is going to be cost controlled for at least a couple, couple more years, and then you know, uh, subject to arbitration, you know, three years after that, uh, Longoria was certainly the only player who had actually signed the deal. Uh, and we're still on that uh, that sort of uh, lofty height. Right. And the guys who uh, passed Longoria this year were Trout, Harper, and Mike Stanton, uh, you know, all pre-arb guys who were making the league minimum. So for someone to have signed a contract that bought out for eight years in the list, you know, to end up at that part of the list shows just how, how nice that contract was for the race. Okay. So maybe if you would just recap for us briefly what the contract uh, – what, what, what contracts uh, – what Ligoria's contract was previously and, and now what it looks like today. So he had signed a deal that uh, essentially gave him a potential of making $44 million over the first nine years of his career. It was a six-year deal with three team options. Uh, this deal guarantees those three team options, uh, which I think add up to a total of like $30 million or so, um, and then adds on a uh, – Hundred million dollars over six-year extension beyond that. So the new deal starts next season. He's still going to make the six million in 2013 that he was scheduled to make uh, under the old contract, um, and then he'll get approximately 120, 130 million over the next nine years, kicking in starting next year, um, all guaranteed. And then there's one team option at the end. So uh, overall, it could end up being a 10-year deal, not too dissimilar from what Troy Tulowitzki signed with the Rockies. Uh, a few years ago, um, but overall, for a little bit less money. Okay, yeah, and um, yeah, 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 that's that has him signed through. It's possibly signed through twenty twenty three. Guaranteed, guaranteed money through twenty twenty two with a team option for twenty twenty three. Does that make him the player signed furthest into the future? Because twenty twenty three doesn't sound like a real. That sounds like a year from the future. Like, yeah, I think uh, Joey Vio got through 2022 last year, okay. uh, but I believe Longoria is the first one. I mean, it's not a guaranteed year in 2023, so he doesn't necessarily have that money locked up. But I think uh, he's the first player to have to be under team control through the 2023. Right now, I saw. Uh, of course, we we have a uh, a top secret VIP message board at Fangraphs, and I saw Bill Petty just estimating. Some of the uh, what what Longoria would have to provide in terms of value, uh, likely to be worth this contract, you know, especially as the the market changes. And I think you said like something like Longoria would only really have to produce like twelve or thirteen wins. Is that is that right? Well, it depends on what the price of a win is in five or six years. And we don't really know. I mean, estimating inflation is hard in any marketplace. Estimating it in Major League Baseball right now is very difficult because of the amount of money that's pouring into the league. That, you know, I think you can make a pretty decent argument that a lot of this TV money is a speculative bubble that can't last forever. So we don't know <laughs> how long these TV contracts are going to keep rising. But right now, I mean, especially with the rumored reports of the Dodgers signing a $6 billion television contract to stay with Fox, uh, it seems unlikely that the, the faucet's going to turn off anytime soon. And so I think we'd expect over the next few years these types of contract extensions are going to go 
uh, way up. And, you know, since Longoria is only under team control for four more years, if the Rays wanted to keep him, they were going to have to sign him in an inflationary period. So, um, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly uh, what kind of production Longoria will need to produce to, to be market value in 2021, but it seems like he'll probably need to be something like an average player. Right, and um, from what we've seen of Longoria, being an average player is uh, something he's pretty capable of. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends on you know how well his body holds up. Obviously, he's had a lot of injury problems. Um, you know, in the post I wrote, I kind of made the Eric Chavez comparison, not to say that that's the likely outcome, but it's certainly a possible outcome of a you know quality defensive third baseman who can also hit, and then you know his body gave out, and from 29 to 34, he was worth a total of two wins. Uh, so that, you know, there's a risk there that Longoria's body just breaks down and he stops being able to play regularly and he becomes a highly overpaid part-time player. As long as he avoids that scenario, though, it's, it's hard to see Longoria losing enough of his skills to where he couldn't produce, you know, two to three wins per season. Um, now, now, Longoria missed uh, some time last year. Was it a, was it a leg that was bothering him? Uh, yeah, I think he broke his leg, yeah. Oh yeah, well that's that's going to leave a mark. Um, yeah. The uh, but there's nothing to suggest. Uh, is there anything to suggest I should say besides that um, that might portend uh, a Chavez type, you know, injury riddled future? No, not really. He's uh, you know had uh, hamstring issues, like somewhat chronic hamstring issues over the last few years. So anytime you see a chronic injury that repeats uh, over multiple years, that gives you some reason to be concerned. But, you know, like Chavez is back giving out and essentially robbing him of all of his power. Uh, you know, that's that seems like the most extreme kind of uh, injury problem that a position player could have. And, you know, minor hamstring issues that, that keep you on the DL, um, you know, haven't had the same kind of production-sapping um, prognosis as what, what Chavez's back problems were. So with Longoria, I think... You know, we've seen that when he's healthy, he's been productive, and his problems haven't lingered over to the playing field. Uh, with Chavez, a lot of the problem was even when he played, he was bad because he couldn't hit the ball very far, hard anymore. You say that a, that a back injury, is, uh, especially a persistent one, um, is, is maybe the, the worst sort of injury uh, a player could have. Um, what do you think? What about loss of limb? Uh, well, you know, I think it depends on the sports, right? Like maybe a baseball losing a leg or an arm would be a disaster, but in uh, you know golf, maybe you could just learn how to fling one-handed. That's true, and you would be—it uh, would be the most heartwarming story of the year, wouldn't it? Maybe it depends on who the golfer was. It's true. He was—he was, he was universally reviled. Perhaps, yeah. Not. John Daly, maybe like even a one-arm John Daly would still be a drunk that no one likes. Well, I think people like. Well, I don't know if people who know him like him. I don't. I can't answer to that. But certainly, he is a. Uh, he, he's an interesting character. Um, right. If he only had one arm, that would make him more interesting. It would certainly make him more interesting. Yeah. You, you could pretty much assure yourself that he would end up if he hadn't already in a. Uh, uh, in a in a, Adam Sandler movie. Um, right. He, he it's shocking been. that he hasn't been yet. Yeah, he might have already been. I don't. I don't know. So. Um, right. So let's. I want to ask a question. I probably asked this precise question, but it sort of seems to, to merit asking again. Um, what? I mean, so okay. This is the answer you've given to the question. I've asked you before. Why did Evan Longoria sign this contract? And you said something to the effect of, "Because listen, you know, ten million or twenty million dollars is still a lot of millions of dollars." Uh, right. And so, 
you know, on the one hand, there's this idea of market value. On the other hand, that's that's money that the player now has that he didn't have before. What, what, is that the same answer that applies to this second extension? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no doubt that there's diminishing returns to millions of dollars. So, you know, the first million is way more important than the second million and on and on and on. And that 134th million is not nearly as important as, you know, the 73rd million. I mean, like, once you start getting up into the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you know, it starts running together. I mean, taxes and agencies and, you know, it's not that Longoria is going to swim in a money bank like a Scrooge McDuck or something, but at the same time, he's set for life, his kids are set for life, his grandkids are set for life. Like, the Longoria clan is going to do just fine. Uh, the only question is, you know, how many islands are they going to be able to buy and, uh, you know, at this point, the basic necessities of life for future generations of Longoria have been taken care of. So, you know, he's making a decision mostly based on wanting to stay in Tampa Bay, being comfortable with the situation, you know, liking uh, the life he has, not wanting to upset the apple cart and kind of go a different direction. And when you're in a situation like he's in, uh, you know, where Tampa Bay doesn't have tons of money, they're never going to make you an offer anywhere close to market value. Uh, your your options don't necessarily come down to maximizing profit. It's, you know, do I want to stay here? And for Longoria, it seems like he did want to stay in Tampa Bay and, you know, be a Ray for the rest of his life, and this is the money that the Rays could offer him in order to make that happen. What do you – do you have a sense of how the union feels uh, about this sort of contract? I mean, this sort of contract is, you know, it's not on, it's not like many others, but um, – the buying up of the arbitration years, the buying out maybe of the first or two free agent years, or I mean something like this, which is a long-term extension and what is likely below market value. Yeah, I mean, so I think in general the agency is mostly concerned with making sure that Major League Baseball is spending a proper amount of its revenues on the players rather than the owners just pocketing it or putting it into some kind of non-salary uh, fund. So I think as long as the you know percentage of total revenue being spent on players is um, similar, I don't think the players' association cares too much about the allocation. Uh, I don't. Uh, I'm not convinced that they're really all that interested in everyone landing an Alex Rodriguez type contract. Uh, I think if everyone signed you know Alex Montgomery type contracts or more of them, they would be okay with that too. I think in general they just care about the total pool and not necessarily the way the pie is split. Okay. Um, yeah, well, reasonable answer, uh, Dave Cameron. Uh, there are some other things. I don't know. Do, is there anything else to say about Longoria that we haven't addressed here? Yeah, I mean, I think to me the interesting part of this is uh, kind of the continuing uh, story of, of the television contracts and with Major League Baseball. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, we've now seen Troy Tolisky, Ryan Braun, Joey Votto, and Evan Longoria all re-signed with mid to small market franchises, uh, essentially for the duration of their careers, right? And so... You know, previously you'd see a guy like Tony Gwynn or Cal Ripken, or every once in a while you'd get a guy who would play his entire career with one franchise, Chipper Jones, obviously just finished out with the Braves, and it'd be like the celebrated thing because it was pretty rare. Now it seems like this is a thing that a lot of players are aspiring to, where, um, you know, I think in, in general we've talked about uh, a player's value to a franchise, you know, whether it be a draft pick or, uh, you know, acquiring a young prospect just being those six years of team control, it seems pretty clear at this point that there's value in developing or acquiring young players beyond just those first six years because you do have an option uh, or an ability to buy out uh, long-term years at, at discounted prices. 
um, because there is some affinity for, for players spending most of or all of their career with one franchise. And so I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether teams uh, incorporate this kind of value into their prospect analysis or whether they already are. Because we hear reports of, you know, certain teams uh, clinging tightly to their prospects, refusing to give up any kind of uh, young talents. The Rangers won't trade jerks and Profar. Uh, for Justin Upton, for instance, uh, you know, I think we, we see the teams have become very um, tight-fisted with their their premium young players, and maybe it's because they recognize that, you know, the value they get from developing that kind of player isn't just those uh, three pre-arb years and the three arbitration years, but the potential value of keeping that guy around for 15 or 20 years at less than market rate. Yeah, do we have a sense that the, the frequency with which players, I mean, this is obviously something that's shifting, but the frequency with which players are, are signing um, with their their original team and uh, maybe the the contracts, um, the, the rates at which they're signing relative to market value. Yeah, I don't think we've seen an exhaustive study that says this is the rate at which extensions are increasing uh, or the the amount of quality that it's uh, reaching free agency. But it, from a subjective standpoint, it certainly seems to be deep that more of these contracts are happening. I mean, I think before. The last couple of years, it was hard to remember a, a player signing a, you know, a 10 or 11 years contract outside of free agency, right? Like Alex Rodriguez got 10 years as a free agent uh, a couple of times. But beyond that, you know, most players were signing six or seven year deals. It seemed to be the, the norm for a long term extension. Um, we're seeing these contracts get longer and longer. We're seeing players sign them, you know, four or five years away from free agency as opposed to one or two. Um, so I think, in general, uh, without knowing exactly the, the ratio of um, kind of the, the improvement in these kind of deals, I think that there is evidence uh, that these deals are becoming more popular and the teams are willing to, to bet more of a long-term risk on a, on a player, especially knowing that the television money falling in is going to make it so that if that player gets hurt, it's not a franchise-crippling maneuver. And I, I know that, uh, uh, that there's, there's always quite a bit of talk about contract year performance, right, and uh, the degree to which uh, – no, no, I'm not saying it's been – it's substantiated. In fact, I think it's been debunked, this idea. But the degree to which a player might um, um, increase his production or become more diligent about his uh, fitness and play uh, in the last year of a contract, it seems as though a 10-year contract, uh, at least anecdotally speaking, uh, could have the opposite effect. But I'm, I'm curious how you'd respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the the walk year phenomenon is uh, not real. Uh, I don't think there's much to the idea that players can, uh, you know, drastically alter their performance. I think they can work a little harder and maybe, you know, put in a little more exercise or, you know, play through injuries they might not have otherwise. There could be a, a minor issue, but I don't I don't buy into the Adrian Bell play at 48 home runs. He's a free agent. He's been slacking up till then. I do think of it as probably a bit of a, a reverse uh, effect, though, where once you sign a deal like this, uh, you know, maybe you call it the Hanley Ramirez effect, where you've gotten paid, you know, your motivation to continue to work hard has been uh, drastically decreased um, versus trying to land the big paycheck in the first place. And so, you know, there probably are guys who, um, you know, get large contracts. Andrew Jones, you know, basically ate his way out of being a premium player and, you know, got out of shape and lost a lot of his skills probably before he should have. Um, I think we've seen evidence of that from guys who, you know, get rich and stop working. And so I think that there's probably something of a, uh, a lagging effect after a, a long-term contract with some players. Um, and so you probably have to be careful what kind of player you're giving this kind of contract to and hope that they can still motivate themselves to work hard 
even after they've become very, very rich. Do you think that's why uh, David Alpman, the CEO and founder of Fangraphs, refuses to, to sign any of us to long-term extensions? Uh, well, I think with you, the, you know, there's probably other reasons. <laughs> right, certainly it's performance-based. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, a couple other things, uh, quick things. Uh, Hiroki Kuroda signed, I think, maybe a 15-year deal. Uh, sometime over the past week, fifteen years for Hiroki Kuroda. That would be pretty. Fifteen long. years, one million dollars per year. That's right. <laughs> what a contract for the Yankees. Yeah, that's right. No, uh, no, uh, no um, yeah, one year, fifteen million dollar deal. I guess that's not crazy. They offered him uh, what a qualifying offer. He rejected it and signed for a little bit more. Right, and he got a two million dollar bump for rejecting the qualifying offer, essentially. So um, it sounds like he wanted to stay in New York. He liked the time in New York. The Yankees want to spend a lot of money on one-year deals because they're trying to get under the luxury tax next year, so they don't want to offer out any multi-year contracts, so they're going to you know, spend a decent amount of money on their uh, 2013 payroll without giving anyone any 2014 money, and uh, Corona only wanted a one-year deal, so it was kind of a match made in heaven. Why would he have only wanted a one-year deal? Well, he's 38 years old, so I mean, I think from some uh, aspects, he's not going to be pitching that much longer. There's some thought that he might want to finish his career in Japan and go back to pitch in uh, NPB before he's completely useless. So, you know, from his perspective, he might only want to pitch in Major League Baseball one more year or at least have the option to decide he wants to leave after next season. Um, and I think at that age, you know, you're not going to get long-term offers on your way. I mean, he could have probably gotten a two-year deal if he wanted, but, you know, he probably like the, the option of being able to leave uh, after next season if he so desired. Uh, we haven't spoken about it um, uh, over the last week, or I guess it happened since we last spoke. Uh, Johnny Gomes is now I guess, a Boston Red Sox. Um, he, I mean, from what I understand of Johnny Gomes, he, he hits lefties pretty well, um, maybe above what you'd consider to be the average platoon split, and he he does not move very fast. Yep, that's Johnny Gomes in a nutshell. Okay. Lefty mashing DH. Okay. <laughs> the, the interesting thing with Boston is they already have a DH. So we're going to be a lefty mashing left fielder, and we're going to get people back to the days of Manny Ramirez and you know Jason Bay and having a you know disabled person run around in front of a green monster. Uh, I think the Red Sox have decided that left field defense doesn't really matter that much. I'm still not sure that's true. I, I'm still of the opinion that you know the Carl Crawford idea wasn't a terrible one. That you still need range even though you have a big giant wall in left field. Uh, yeah, it's not an absolute necessity, and Golden's can hit enough to to make it worth it. Um, game against left-handed pitching, but when the right-handers on the mound, uh, you probably don't want Golden's playing left field. Right, and um, we also have uh, well, we mentioned it uh, towards the beginning of this conversation, but Jeremy Guthrie, for, for some reason, um, is of great appeal to the Kansas City Royals. I, how much money did they end up giving him, approximately? They give him. Twenty-five million over three years, and then because it's backloaded, twenty million of it comes in the last two years. So he's only going to make five million next year, uh, and then there's a pretty good chance that you know because he's 34 and his skills are declining, uh, he's going to become bad sooner than later. He's already not great. Uh, he's going to atrophy, and then they're going to owe him twenty million dollars over the last two years of the deal. It's going to be totally immovable, and it's going to be the Royals all over again. So you know. Uh, I don't mean to pile on Dayton more, but he's just not very good at his job, and he continues to pay money to the wrong players. Uh, I think if you look at the Royals' payroll, uh, about half of their 2013 salary is going to go to Urban Santana, Jeff Francoeur, Bruce Chen, um, and now Jeremy Guthrie. That's ridiculous. You can buy those kind of players for you know a couple million dollars in free agency. 
you could acquire four of those players for, you know, maybe ten, twelve million dollars without a whole lot of effort. Uh, the Royals are spending thirty million, and they only have sixty or seventy million to spend total. They're basically blowing their payroll on mediocrities. And why they continue to think that this is a good roster building idea, I have no idea. Right. Well, you know, three years ago, uh, I was looking just over because actually Mark Hewitt, uh, prospect analyst for Fangas, released his top fifteen list for the Royals today. And uh, I had occasion to go back and look at a couple of the other lists. I think it was two years ago for the top three organizations he did like a full top 30 list, you know. Um, And there's a lot of talent on that. And you look at it and you say even if – I mean you certainly don't expect every guy, um, you know, to to become an excellent major leaguer. But if even if, you know, a percentage of these guys work out, that's a great base from which to work. And if you make some smart signings on top of it, sign solid free agents – then you have, a, you know, at least a, a slightly above average baseball team. But that didn't happen, is my point. Yeah, it didn't. And, you know, I, I'll admit that I was never as high on the Royals from our, our uh, minor league system as uh, some of the others. I wonder if there's an effect here of, uh, you know, once you have a few premium prospects in the system, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of helps the evaluation of all the others because, you know, now you're looking more closely at that farm system and they're, getting more scrutiny because they're rated as one of the top farm systems and, you know, they're, uh, the positive glow around a Hosmer or a Stockis or a Will Myers can help kind of inflate the idea of a, a Danny Duffy or, a, you know, Mike Montgomery or some of these other uh, prospects that were considered to be elite guys who, you know, maybe were or weren't elite guys uh, based on their actual performance. I, I just wonder whether the Royals actually had the stock of young talent they were hyped to have. They certainly had a few guys who projected as, you know, really nice young players I don't know that I ever saw a championship core uh, developing internally, and it doesn't seem like Aiden Moore has the ability to put championship players around the players he develops. Right. It does seem – I mean, even if you take for granted that uh, he's done a good job at, you know, uh, restocking the farm system, you know, there's – the right. The other part of that is – is having the sort of killer instinct with signing for agents and, you know, or making savvy trades using those – Using those prospects to to acquire championship type players, and that has not been done. I think we could say pretty assuredly. Uh, right. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think part of the idea of developing a farm system isn't just that you know a whole bunch of young players all get to majors together, but some of them should be chips. And like I think part of a good GM's job is figuring out which of his prospects are currently overvalued and using them to uh, you know find current major league players that can help their team. And so you know I think. Uh, the idea of just losing for a long time, gathering a whole bunch of draft picks and letting your young players all develop at the same time, uh, isn't really a strategy that works all that well. I mean, you know, even the Rays, when we look at, you know, with Longoria and Upton and Crawford and Price and all the guys they developed, you know, they also stole Ben Zobrist and turned him into a pretty good player. And they, you know, uh, were able to kind of pick off guys like that to fill out the roster who made a big difference. I don't think you can just sit around and wait for all of your prospects to develop and, and think that's going to turn you into a good team. Um, yes, Esteban Herman, uh, w- while he has his own virtues, did not, uh, turns out, turn into Ben Zobrist. Yeah, shockingly enough. Shockingly. Uh, you know, on this, to this point, uh, three players, or of course, uh, last Tuesday, uh, teams had to finalize their 40-man rosters uh, to protect players from the Rule 5 draft. Um, and uh, the, the Royals added a bunch of guys, three of them, are left-handed pitchers Chris Dwyer, John Lamb, and Mike Montgomery, all three of whom were considered top ten prospects in the Royals organization. You look today at Hewlett's rankings, only one of them even makes the top 15. That's that's uh, Dwyer, I think, uh, or maybe it was Lamb. doesn't matter. The point is, uh, 
the point is that you know at some point it would have been nice to do something with, with those guys because now uh, they certainly have very very little market value. So you're just waiting for them to post something better than a two to one strikeout to walk ratio in the minor leagues. Yeah, I, the more I look at this, the more I wonder whether even developing pitching prospects is a very good idea. Because I mean, I think if you look at the free agent pitching market of the last couple of years, it's not that hard to cobble together a decent staff out of you know guys who just want a one-year deal, bounce back guys. You know, Paul Mahomes last year. Uh, you know, maybe a Sean Markham or Dan Heron this year. Uh, you know, it's it's just not that difficult to go into the free agent market, find a few guys who you know. Posted an ERA higher than their peripherals, had some injury problems, don't want a long-term commitment, um, and you know, cobble together an interesting kind of pitching rotation uh, without you know having to spend much on prospect development or kind of putting your eggs in the in the pitching prospect basket. I think if I'm a major league GM at this point and I understand how much uh, value I can get in trade for some of these young pitchers, I'm probably flipping almost all of my young pitchers and and really focusing on developing hitters and buying pitchers and free agents because it seems to me that. Uh, the market has shifted to the point where you can cobble together a pretty good rotation, or at least an adequate rotation, uh, of cheap, low-cost major league starters uh, without really spending too much on draft and development of young pitchers. And given the attrition rate of young arms, uh, I'm not sure you really get the reward of, of keeping them around and trying to build your own rotation in-house. Yeah, well, uh, to that point, perhaps, uh, another player who was added to his team's 40-man roster uh, last week was... Michael Inoa, now uh, 21, um, was a, I think was given at the time the largest international signing bonus ever. Yeah, he got like 4.2 million from the A's. Yeah, and uh, and now I think he, I mean, he pitched I think maybe 30 innings this past year between the ro- rookie and low A maybe, and yep. and uh, walked as many as he struck out. It's, I mean, yeah, you hope you hope for the best for him, but it's not looking excellent. Right, I mean, blew out his arm not too long after he signed, and he's been trying to work his way at way back. I think, uh, you know, he's kind of a, a warning sign for why you don't necessarily want to invest huge amounts of money in 16-year-old pitchers, uh, even ones who look very talented. Um, and I think, you know, the the A's protecting him uh, was maybe a little bit of a long shot. You know, maybe the, maybe they knew the Astros would take a shot at him because the Astros are going to be terrible, and you know, they'd hope they could turn him into a power reliever and then send him back to the minors next year, but. It doesn't seem like Anel is anywhere close to being a uh, uh, useful major league pitcher. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, I mean, but at some point, every pitcher in the major leagues was 16, right? And yeah. the ones who were good, they were 16. So there have been pitchers who are now good who were 16. So that does. So I, I think that it seems to me that it's not necessarily not picking up 16 year old pitchers. It's maybe. Uh, readjusting the sort of their value in, in, in your head. Right. So, I mean, the idea isn't that you shouldn't try to develop pitching prospects. It's the price that you pay for them or the price at which you're willing to sell them. So, like, you know, I think if we kind of look at pitching prospects as uh, less differentiated than hitting prospects, it's not as hard to tell a good position player from a good pitching, from a good, uh, from a mediocre position player prospect. You can look at a guy in, you know, A ball or double A and have a better idea of whether he's going to turn into a major league regular or is a utility player or he's a bench guy or he's not a major leaguer than you can with pitching prospects where you just kind of say, well, 
pretty much every under 21 year old pitching prospect needs to develop a changeup. They need to refine their command. Uh, they probably only have one or two pitches. Uh, you know, if if their third pitch doesn't develop, they could be headed to the bullpen. And if their arm doesn't blow out, uh, then maybe they'll stick as a starter, but they might profile better as a reliever. I mean, that's essentially the scouting report on every pitching prospect in the minors, or something really close to it. Um, you know, some of them have more velocity than others. Others have better breaking balls. It's not that they're all exactly the same, but I think when we look at you know pitchers, you can see a guy like a James Shields or a, you know uh, one of these guys who's written off or kind of assumed to not be a, a high-end pitching prospect turning into a, a pretty good pitcher. I mean, Chris Medlin last year, you know, he's never going to do that again, most likely. But this is a guy who was kind of considered to be a swing starter, uh, you know, maybe a bullpen guy, and he, he pitched like Greg Maddox. <laughs> and, uh, I think we have a lot of examples of these pitchers who don't necessarily profile as high-end guys turning into much better pitchers than expected. Um, you know, Doug Fister's another example. Um, you know, I think it's just harder to identify ahead of time uh, the track that a pitcher is actually on uh, than it is with position players. And because there's, you know, kind of more of a, a toss-up situation, it doesn't make sense to pay a huge premium for guys who throw 97 when that doesn't seem to be the separator of why a pitcher is good or not. Right. Uh, now, b- uh, before we go, Cameron, I'd just like to uh, inform you, because I know you'll be um, hungry for this information, uh, Darwin Perez, middle infielder, Darwin Perez, uh, who became a free agent recently, a minor league free agent, has signed with the Oakland Athletics. I- I'm shocked that a player that you like, uh, who is under-tooled and overperformed in the minors, signed with a team that has historically been a haven for that kind of player. Yes. Well, uh I don't be too shocked, Cameron. You have to uh, revive yourself for the rest of the day, and uh, and lead lead Fangraphs in text. I guess it's Cyber Monday. Is that a thing? That's a new thing. That that is well, it's not really a new thing. I think it's like the online answer to Black Friday, uh, which I also did not participate in, and we'll just be keeping my money to myself. Thanks, retailers. Leave me alone. Yeah, but I never heard the word Cyber Monday till Paul Swiden told me we were doing a podcast. Oh, sorry, not. Not a long advertisement for the THT annual uh, right. uh, for Cyber Monday. And I said, what's Cyber Monday? He said, it's the Monday after Black Friday. Yeah. yeah. It's a thing where people just try to extract money from you. Well, they're not doing it today, Cameron. Well, we are. We're, well, we're oh, no. We, no, right. Not for me. Yes. We want everyone else's yeah. money. Though. I think that we should make yeah. that clear. We are extracting money from people as well. Right, we want to do... Oh, yeah, right. So I support Cyber Monday. I think it's a great thing. Right, as long as they shop at Vanguard. Yes, yeah, do it. Ah, yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great publication, and uh, we should do that, too. All right, well, uh, get off the phone here, camera. Well, stick around for a second, but uh, in the meantime, thanks for uh, thanks for performing your duty. Uh, that's what I do. All right, that is uh, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Audio.